So, as we already discussed, um, our church is coming to the end of a series on the book of James, and we've been working on memorizing the Bible. So all of us, whether you've been participating or not, we're going to memorize James chapter 5, verse 16, at least the first part of the verse, because that's where our sermon title, Prayer and Healing, come from, and that's where we're going to finish today. So if you have your Bibles, why did I say that? Because you have your Bibles, take out your Bibles and open to the book of James. We'll be spending almost all of our time in James chapter 5, Hebrews, James, James chapter 5, and let's say together a couple times, James chapter 5, I did say verse 16, didn't I? Yes, I did. Ready? Here we go. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. Let's do that once more. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. We're talking about prayer and healing this morning. Now, there's many different ways to memorize the Bible. Appreciate Alan Parker sent out an app. There's an app for that, of course called Scripture Typer, and it's based on a method of Bible memorization where you take the first letter of every word and you type it in as you're saying it, and that's an effective way to memorize the Bible. I just listen to the Bible over and over and over again. I've probably listened to the book of James through at least two or 3,000 times over the last several months because every day when I'm driving back and forth to work, I get to listen to it at least three times. Um, does that math add up? Okay, that might be an exaggeration. Um, I'm not good at math on the top of my head. But I just listened to Alexander Scorby reading it. I just love his deep voice. I just listen to it. Some people draw pictures. Doug is our itinerant artist, and he does an excellent job of drawing pictures of the entire sermon. It's very easy. Elma, I believe, also memorized the chapter drawing pictures. But I want to share with you a method of Bible memorization that may appeal to those of you who, I don't recommend this, but like playing football or rugby, okay, uh, or full contact sports. It's bad for your brain, don't do this, you know, don't try it at home, if you must, at least wear a helmet. But those of you who are into full contact sports, there is a method of um, Bible memorization that I hadn't really thought of before, but um, I think it's gonna be either on the slide here, or yeah, can you guys go ahead and play it? I'm not sure how to play this thing. about where the video ends. So I came around the corner. That makes me happy for some reason. I don't know. Um, I came around the corner hearing all this noise and screaming. I just walked out in the kitchen. I had to give it a video. So for your consideration, full contact Bible memorization. Right? Um, now, I don't know, but when you think about the message James was bringing, this was a letter to a church. They probably got into it a little bit, don't you think? I mean, this was a serious message. I don't know. Anyhow, as you've also seen, this is our graduation celebration for the Best Way program. 
thankful for all of those who did it, especially to, uh, to Aisha and Karen who've put in so much work into it. I really appreciate that. And we're thankful that, um, uh, for Zita being here and others who are being here. And again, you heard about this afternoon, we have a special program. We've come to the end of our Bible series on James, and I think it goes nicely with the best way graduation, because as those of you who have studied James before know, James chapter 5 is about healing, isn't it? Um, we're familiar with the idea of anointing for the sick. Um, I hope there's a couple things that we've noticed as we've been going through the whole book of James. One thing I will mention to encourage you to consider Bible memorization, several people who have participated in memorizing a whole chapter and standing up in front of the church uh, have said to me that the sermon has never come so alive before because I've been thinking about it for weeks ahead of time, I've memorized it, and when the Word of God is presented, it comes alive in a way I've never seen it before. Um, so I think we should do more of this. We should do more of letting you know ahead of time what the sermon's about so we can memorize it, think about it, because I think it will only increase our appreciation for the Word of God. One other thing that you might have noticed about James is he does a lot of quoting. James quotes a lot from his half-brother, Jesus. Uh, have you noticed as we've gone through the book how many times he does that? I'll point out a few times today. One example just right off, James chapter 5, verse 12, where he said, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Do you remember Jesus saying that in the Sermon on the Mount? That was one of the uh, main points Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. James almost directly quotes him, and he makes many, many allusions to the teaching of Jesus as well. So this morning, we're going to be looking at four major themes throughout James chapter 5. But before we do, uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Join me. Dear God, I ask that you will bless me today. I ask that you will bless um, each hearer. I ask that the Word of God, through the inspired writer, will come alive and that you will speak through these words to each of our hearts. You know all the people who are here and the different needs that they have. I ask that the Bible will speak to them in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first theme in the book of James is nicely introduced by this man. Does anybody know who this is? Jesse. Jesse, you, Jesse Duplantis, we have a winner. That is indeed Jesse Duplantis. He is a, a preacher, and he was in the news a while back because... Jesse Duplantis told his congregation and parishioners and anyone else who would listen that Jesus told him he needed a jet. Well, he already had three jets. He's pointing at them in the picture. But Jesus has good taste in jets, and he needed another one. In fact, he needed one that was much more luxurious and had a longer range than the three he already had. And he wasn't planning to get rid of the other three. He needed a fourth. And um, this jet was going to cost approximately $54 million dollars. Um, but, of course, nothing was too good for Jesus. And so he um, is one of those type of preachers that you might call a prosperity preacher. Now, as you listen to the book of James that we just recited, do those first six verses in the book of James go along well with that? Maybe it's true that the reason Jesus said it's a narrow way that leads to salvation is because it's only for the 1%. Is that the message of the book of James? As Jesse Duplantis might share with you, if you have material possessions, it is obvious that God is blessing you. 
Is that the message of the book of James? No, in fact, it was uh, somewhat opposite. And we've seen this all through the book of James. James chapter 5 is going to finish off some themes that have already happened. We've seen this theme in chapter 1, 2, and 4. And James seems to indicate that it's actually the opposite, that riches actually make it more difficult for someone to enter the kingdom. And in this, James is simply quoting Jesus. You might remember there was a rich young man that came to Jesus. It's recorded in Mark chapter 10 and some of the other gospels as well. And um, Jesus, it says, loved this man. And he extended to him an invitation that he did not extend to very many people. In fact, only 12 others that we're aware of. He told this young man, he gave him the rabbinic call. He said, follow me. He was inviting him into a close relationship where he could be with Jesus all the time and learn from him the way of salvation. And again, this was a high honor. To our knowledge, only 12 others were ever given that call. Jesus wanted this man to be an apostle. What did he do? He turned it down. Why? He was very sorry to turn it down. Why did he turn it down? Because he had great possessions, great wealth, great riches. He turned his back on it. You see, human beings have this tendency to trust in what we can see. I was in the doctor's lounge, and I don't know why in the doctor's lounge they try to sell things like this, but you've probably seen the commercial. They're trying to get people to buy gold for their IRA, and there was, it ends with this tagline, if you can't hold it, do you really own it? What a silly concept. But humans are like that. I would say we could summarize the entire message of Scripture, however, with 2 Corinthians 4.18, where it says, those things that are seen are what? Temporary, temporal. But those things that are not seen are eternal. But if you have more of the things that you can see, it tends to make us value the things that we can't see less and less. It is more difficult for someone to grasp the promise of a future kingdom if we have a kingdom now. So riches, according to James and Jesus, are not helpful in entering the kingdom. They're actually harmful. They decrease the chances that you will be saved. But they are useful for one thing, and that is demonstrating priorities. And so James talks about riches in that regard. He talks about how riches are going to be a witness in the judgment. In fact, they're a very dangerous witness in the judgment if they, are, if they meet two categories. In verse 4, it talks about how riches might be gained in an incorrect manner. Remember? If they are gained by defrauding employees, these riches are going to witness against you in the judgment. Verse 3 refers back to an idea from chapter 2. If your riches are kept in an incorrect manner when a brother is in need. It demonstrates that you don't love your neighbor as yourself. How you use your material possessions, your time, your talents, your energy, is a very, very accurate picture of what your priorities really are. And riches, in that regard, are very useful. And they will be used 
in the judgment. They demonstrate whether or not we love our neighbor as ourselves. The second theme, take your Bibles and look at verse 3 through 9. I'll give you a moment to see if you can come up with it. This was a new thought to me, but it's, I'll give you a hint. It's appropriate that the last chapter in the book of James talks about this particular theme. Look at the last part, the last phrase or few words of each of these verses from verse 3 to verse 9. Do you see it? Maybe it would help if I put it on the screen. It's a little bit hard for you to tell, but I think you can tell what's bolded there. I simply bolded the last parts of uh, these verses. Do you see a theme there? I had not seen this before because it kind of covers two other themes in the book of James as we see. But the last, these next seven verses almost all refer to the idea of the last days, a time of judgment, a time when the judge is standing before the door, a time when executive judgment is about to be given. It kind of reminded me, especially in connection with the uh, first few verses there about uh, riches, about the story of the fall of Babylon. You might remember from Daniel chapter 5, there was a time of pleasure and being wanton, of nourishing one's heart, even though a day of slaughter was rapidly approaching. Now, it might be true that there are times to enjoy life and in times to relax, times to have a party, times to have some pleasure, though probably not the way James is talking about it. But is it true there are times when it's inappropriate to do that? That's definitely true. And James is talking about a time when it's very serious, a time when we need to be reflecting on what's really important to us in life, a time when living in pleasure on the earth might be inappropriate, when the end of all things is at hand. This is times for seriousness and reflection. I don't want to spend too much time talking about the concept of present truth, but what this said to me is that James 5 is present truth for me today. Because there's a time mark on James chapter five. And the concepts that it's presenting are especially important for us right now. The third theme, let's transition to it from verse six. We're gonna spend most of our time on the fourth theme, of course, prayer and healing. Look at the end of verse 6. Well, verse 6 refers back to chapter 4. Remember, um, Eric shared about chapter 4. Where do wars and fightings come from? They come from your desires that are warring in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. This verse refers to killing as well. And I believe James, similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is using the idea of murdering one's brother in a spiritual sense. Because the Ten Commandments do condemn killing. But does that commandment only condemn physical murder? Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, the mental hatred and negative emotions that precede a physical act are included in the commandments. I believe that's what James is talking about here in verse 6. Look at the end of the verse. The last part of 
verse 6 leads into the next section. What is the correct response to persecution, condemnation, and even threatened death? What's the correct response? Show no resistance. It's patience. Who said patience? I think Hildelisa said patience. The next five verses use the word patience five times. This is our next theme. The theme is patience. And there's two ways to be patient, and this was also a new discovery to me as I was studying this chapter. The way I've always thought about showing patience is the kind of patience that we see in verse 10 and 11. That is patient suffering, patient endurance. And two examples are given. I was going to quiz you, but I see they're already up there on the board. The answer, there's two examples, are the prophets and Job. The prophets suffered. Job suffered. Do people suffer in the great controversy? Yes, they do. And we are called to exercise patience under suffering. Are Americans good at suffering? No, we're not. In fact, there's a whole meme called First World Problems. I'll share a couple. You've probably seen them. You know, this is suffering American style. My iPhone is not the newest anymore. Or maybe the bed is so big my phone charger won't reach where I sleep. This is American suffering. These are first world problems. The Wi-Fi is free, but it's so slow. I can't stream what I want to stream off the internet. Americans are not very good at suffering. But friends, when you think from a Bible perspective, we've previously studied the Beatitudes here, suffering for righteousness sake is the apex of Christian character development, according to Jesus. I mean, that's the Beatitudes. One Beatitude built on the other. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of glory. But there's another kind of patience here that I had never thought about before, at least not in these terms, and that's in verse 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 and 8. Who is the example of patience here? Verse 7, there's someone who's waiting. Who's waiting? It's a farmer, a husbandman, the King James Version says, someone who's raising a crop. And this person is waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the harvest and the events that are going to lead immediately into the harvest, and they want it to happen. They're waiting patiently for it, but they have this deep desire that the harvest come. They've worked really hard for this harvest, and they're patiently waiting. It's not patience as in suffering, it's patience as in waiting a little bit. It kind of reminded me of this quote that Eddie's previously shared in a sermon. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. This is talking about Jesus, who is the husbandman, yes. He's the farmer. He's the one who has planted the seed, and he's waiting for the harvest. What are his emotions while he's waiting? What are his emotions? He has a longing, he has a deep longing desire for the harvest to become ripe. He's waiting for that. I've thought about this quote before. I've thought about the concept that Jesus is waiting for the harvest many times before. I had never thought about the concept that verse 8 brings to life. 
When you look at verse 8, do you see that Jesus' example of waiting is an example for you and I? Do you see that in the verse? Be ye also patient. We are to be patient just like Jesus is patient. Is Jesus waiting in inactivity? Jesus is working full-time for your salvation and mine right now. He has a deep longing desire that his character will be reproduced in yours. And his example of waiting is an example for you and I. So the question is, are you waiting like Jesus? Do you have patience like Jesus? Do you have a deep desire that Jesus' character will be reproduced in you? That's the easy question. The harder question is, do you have a deep desire that Jesus' character will be reproduced in someone else? Because that's the way Jesus is waiting. He wants to see a reflection of Christ's character in others. What are you willing to sacrifice so that you can be patient like Jesus? So that you'll be able to see his character reproduced in someone else. I think I'll skip over the uh, next idea very briefly. Verse 8 talks about something for you to do while you're waiting. Jesus told a story about when the rains come down and the floods come up. Remember that? Maybe you've sung a song about it. And uh, I was just going to show what happens when the rains come down and the floods come up at our house and make the point that there are two kinds of plants in our garden, just like there are two kinds of houses that Jesus talked about. And what makes the difference is um, whether the root system is established. So let's go on to the fourth theme. I want to spend more time here. The fourth theme is that of prayer, and we're looking now at verse 13 through 20. Look at your Bible. I want you to tell me how many types of prayer you see in those verses. Also a new thought to me. Verse 13 through 20. How many types of prayer? How many of you see more than one type of prayer? Raise your hands. How many of you see more than two types of prayer? How many of you see more than three types of prayer? Careful, whoever has their hand up the longest, I'm going to call on them. How many see more than four types of prayer? No takers. Boy, I scared everyone with that last one. All right, look at these verses together. Look at verse 13. What's the first type of prayer? If you are? If you're suffering. If you're afflicted. Good. So if you're afflicted, what should you do? You should pray. What's the next type of prayer? If you're happy, you should sing some psalms. Have you read the psalms recently? They're prayers. Yes? Especially the prayers that you could sing when you are happy. I kind of see verse 14 and 15 going together. They're talking about a specific service of the church, which we'll talk about in a moment. This is a prayer when serious illness is present. Look at verse 16. It seems to me that this is more general, doesn't it? This is now general instruction for the whole church, but it's a prayer for what? For? A prayer for healing. Yeah. Pray for one another that you may be healed. 
you could argue that the last part of the verse is a different type of prayer, but I think it's introducing verse 17 and 18. Who's the righteous man that he talks about? That's Elijah. And in verse 17, Elijah prays a prayer that I have never prayed before ever. And I don't know, if you have, then maybe I'll worry about you a little bit. But he prays for what? He prays for a judgment on God's people. Have you ever prayed for a judgment on God's people? That's, um, okay, Reynolds has. Okay, I'm, I'm worried about Reynolds. You know, there may be a place for that, but did Elijah love God's people? He did. And what's his next prayer in verse 18? It's a prayer for mercy, isn't it? Right? Prayed for judgment, and then he also prayed for mercy. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about uh, the middle two prayers of these six types of prayer. I saw six there. You could argue for seven. Look with me specifically at um, verse 14 and 15. See if I can catch up here. Yeah, there we go. This is prayer for someone when they're seriously ill. I think this is somewhat familiar. How many of you have ever been part of or participated or seen an anointing service? Raise your hands. Okay, so a good proportion of you. That's what James is talking about here, isn't it? This is not a prayer for when you have the common cold. This is a prayer, if you see in the verses, it, the idea is this person is laid up in bed. They are, the elders are to pray over him. That is, he can't get up, he's lying down. And it's a prayer that he could be raised up. Um, but there's a promise there. The prayer of faith will do what? Prayer of faith will do what? Save the sick. Now, um, we are privileged this morning to have a scholar here, and so I'm going to ask a scholar to explain to us what that word actually means. It's the Greek word sozo, and the Greek word sozo is used in the New Testament in so many different ways that I thought we could have someone from the Biblical Research Institute explain it to us. Dr. Wallin, we're thankful you're here. Thank you. I didn't know he was going to ask me to do this, but um, the word sozo means a broad sense of healing because as Adventists we believe that we're a whole person, right? So when we're talking about saving uh, someone, it means saving the whole person physically, mentally, and spiritually. Amen. Could you tell us a couple places where Jesus used that word? Um, well, usually it's, it's uh, used um, by Jesus when he says, your faith has saved you. Same word. It may be translated heal you, but it is the word sozo. Thank you. It's a very interesting word in the New Testament. Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will sozo you from your sins. But also, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 523, come lay your hand on her that she may be sozo, made whole in all senses of the word. Thank you, uh, Dr. Wallin. The word does mean healing from physical sickness, but that's not all that it means. Because when you think about it, is that God's major concern about your life? No. God wants you to be saved in all senses. He wants you to be saved from suffering, yes, but He wants you to be saved eternally. This goes along with the next phrase, the Lord will raise him up. Jesus used this in John chapter 6. He said over and over again, he will be raised up. I will raise him up. I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus' promise, both in John 6 and James, quoting his brother here, is that the sickness of this world 
is going to be eternally healed. Martha understood this. When Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, what did she say? I know that he will rise again at the last day. And that is what our faith should be focused on because we want to be saved, eternally saved. Um, and I think this is confirmed by the last phrase of that verse. If he hath committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Do you want to know that your sins are forgiven? I do. That is an incredible promise. Verse 16 generalizes this idea. I thought that James chapter 5 was only about going, you know, calling a few elders of the church if you have some serious illness like a stroke or heart attack or cancer or something like that. Call the elders of the church to come and anoint you with oil and pray over you. But verse 16, it seems to me, this healing is for everybody. Do you see that in the verse? It has now taken this idea of healing and generalized it. And the reason for that, if you remember what Isaiah describes us as, from head to the foot, there's no soundness in any of us. All of us are deathly ill and need to be healed. How does this verse tell us we can be healed? What's the first word? We memorize this. Why don't we say it together? Confess your faults one to another and pray for one for another that ye may be healed. That's how. Confession is required. James, again, is referring back to something Jesus said in Matthew 18. If you have something between brothers in the church, sisters in the church, go and make that right with the smallest group possible. Don't spread it around to the entire church. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 5, and this is kind of an interesting concept. I've often wondered if anyone's put it into practice. If you come to church and you're ready to give a big offering to the building fund or whatever, you know, right? building fund. We're going to say this many times. But you remember that one of your brothers or sisters has something against you. What are you to do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then God can bless the gift that you want to give. Amen? Confession within the family of God is required for us to be healed in all senses of the word. The next phrase is pray one for another. Friends, we need to be interceding for one another more than we do. There's a fascinating text in 1 Samuel 12, 23. Did you know that it is a sin for you not to be praying for your brothers and sisters in the church? 1 Samuel, Samuel himself said to the elders of Israel who were saying, oh, please keep praying for us. He said, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Friends, we need to take this more seriously. And I've been convicted this week that I need to be praying for my friends in the church more than I do. There's a promise, and that's healing. And this is healing from a Bible perspective. Healing of physical ailments, yes, healing of social disagreements, healing of emotional problems, healing of us spiritually. Come this afternoon and we'll talk about all of those different categories. I always looked at the last phrase of that verse. I believe that's where it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I've heard that quoted at all the anointing services I've ever been to. 
And I thought that's what it was talking about. But do you know it isn't? There's a progression here. We need to be confessing our sins to each other. We need to be drawing together as family and making sure there's nothing between us. And then we need to be praying and interceding for each other on a daily basis. Then the Bible promises you will be healed. As a church family, we will be healed. And then the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can avail much. Only then. Don't skip those other steps. I do want to make an advertisement right here. I don't see Alma here, so I'll take her role. Day of prayer and fasting is coming up. Uh, April, I wrote it down here somewhere, April 27. And I've gone to day of prayer and fasting here at our church. It's a wonderful experience. I hope all of you will participate. I really enjoy it. But after studying James 5, I now see that there are prerequisites to have what the Bible calls availing prayer. Do you see that? So I want to encourage you between now and April 27, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. And then the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Who is uh, James' example of a righteous man? It's, it's um, Elijah. Now Jesus talked about availing prayer and availing faith. And he said it could move mountains. Here in the book of James, availing prayer affects weather patterns. But does God really care about weather patterns? No. Why, does God, why did Elijah pray about weather patterns? Was it because he just didn't want there to be any rain? Of course not. It was because he wanted a revival among God's people. Do you think that that same progression of confession, intercessory prayer, healing, and availing prayer could lead to revival today. Amen. The last two uh, verses, um, I kind of just, I didn't really understand them until a few weeks ago. You can see them there in your Bible, verse 19 and 20. They seem to me to be kind of um, just tacked on there. But then I started thinking about how all these prior verses about healing have to do with unity in the body of Christ, have to do with love between brothers and sisters and care and concern. I hate it when I cry when I'm preaching, but I, I was prepared this time. Um, I want to tell you two stories one that's within the last several months anyway, and the other that's um, centuries old. One is about our church family. I know that the Holy Spirit is active here. There's someone in our church family that, they're here, so I want to be careful how I say this. Um, you know who you are, don't take offense. I'll just say it this way, they're, they're not a close friend. You know, I know who they are, I like them. We, there's nothing between us, but we hang out in different circles. They know who they are, I'm not gonna. Um, 
I'll put it this way. I have never, ever, ever, to my knowledge, gotten a text message from them. Ever. Which, of course, is how, you know, millennials communicate, right, and stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's been within the last several months, I got a very long text message from this person. And you know what they said? They said, I'm worried about a friend of mine. I think they are spiritually struggling. And do you know what happened? This other person is also a nice person that I like them very much. You know, I consider them friends, but we're not close friends. We go in different circles. I don't see them that often. I also don't think I've gotten a single text message from them, maybe ever, at least not in several years. And they said, I'm worried about this person. Do you think you could help? Do you know it wasn't 10 minutes later that through life circumstances I had an opportunity to sit down with that person? I like how Mickey says there's no coincidences, you know? Well, maybe there are, but this wasn't. Amen? The Holy Spirit is at work in our church, but are you listening? Excuse me. Do you notice when people are missing? I don't. I don't always. What do you do about it? The last two verses in the book of James give some very good advice. Let me tell you another very short story. I can't remember the source for this. But this story explains what it means to truly have the love of the brethren. Imagine that you are living in Rome, maybe 100 AD. Being a Christian is not, lo not legal. You get taken and thrown to the lions if you decide to be a Christian. And as the story goes, there was a group of people who were studying to become Christians. And the elder who was leading out in the Bible study, um, they were probably several weeks from being baptized. Back then, being baptized meant something, didn't it? You were risking your life. He was studying with them, but someone tattled on them, if you will. The entire group of people who were studying the Bible to become Christians were arrested and thrown in the um, dungeon, and they were going to be taken to the Colosseum, you know, several weeks hence. What do you do if you're a church leader? I'll tell you what do you do if you're a church leader that cares about your flock. You do what that elder did. He went to the prison and gave himself up, confessed to being a Christian, and asked to be locked up with his parishioners, knowing that he was going to share their fate. Because he needed to be there to encourage them. 
to help them complete their journey to Christ. Because he understood true healing and he understood an eternal perspective that I think is very easy for us to forget. Perhaps because we're Americans and we've got a lot of stuff. Perhaps, well, I won't, I won't ask what's going on in your life. There are many different reasons that we forget an eternal perspective. But friends, the message of the Bible is that those things which are seen are temporary, but those things which are not seen are eternal. God's desire for each of us, God's desire for our church family, is eternal healing. And that's my prayer for us as well.